All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Creating Structure podcast. I'm your host, John Wheaton. It is a great pleasure and privilege to have with me Mr. Patrick McClamey, uh, author, former CEO of HOK, speaker, um, shaker and mover. Patrick, welcome to the show. Thank you, John. I, I appreciate that great introduction. It's a it's, pleasure to be here. It's such an honor. Um, I'll do a little more introduction than I normally do. For many people, uh, Patrick will need no introduction. Um, Patrick uh, was an architect for 50 years. He's a fellow in AIA. He's an author. Um, he's known for something called the, Mc, the McLeamy Curve related to building information modeling, which is fascinating to me as well. Um, recently authored his own book. He's a podcaster in his own right, a keynote speaker, and uh, I'm really looking forward to learning and uh, diving in with you, Patrick. Thank you. The pleasure is all mine, John. So, Patrick, um, as I do with all my guests, give us a little background about where you're from, where you went to school, how you got this job. Yes, okay. Um, actually, my beginnings were maybe like most people, quite modest. I was born in a small industrial town in the Midwest in Illinois. My father worked uh, uh, at an oil refinery. So it was a dirty, smelly place. Um, but our, my grandfather who lived nearby was a carpenter who built houses for people. And I idolized my grandfather. And I watched him as he drew floor plans for the houses he was going to design on the kitchen table at his house. He had a handmade, this is long, long before computers. He drew by hand. He had a handmade drafting board and a handmade T-square. Love it. And uh, instead of using a triangle to do the vertical lines, he turned the T-square up, put it against the top of the drafting board and made his vertical lines. I mean, that was my grandfather. And uh, I watched him and I begged him. I said, you know, I called him Pop. I said, Pop, I, I really want to do this. Can, can you help, help me draw something? So finally, one day he did. And I was hooked. I just, the, the idea of putting lines down on a piece of paper and creating, in this case, a house plan from just ideas was, was fascinating to me. Mm -hmm. I had never been so excited about something. And uh, so I didn't know what an architect was at the time, but I went home and announced to my mom and dad, I'm going to be a carpenter when I grow up because they get to draw house plans. I love it. <laughs> and so it was only later that I understood that, uh, that the person that drew the plans in, a, in the traditional world was the architect. And uh, so uh, I wanted to be an architect, uh, I think, before I went to the first grade. And uh, never wavered from that. Except, really? Except for a time in school. After I, I grew up in the, in the same little Midwestern town, uh, industrial town, uh, enrolled at the University of Illinois, Champaign-Urbana, uh, in architecture school. And at that time, anyone who wanted to enter, who was a graduate of a high school in the state, could enter the university uh, if you had a C average, I think it was. So there were 
the university was like a big magnet pulling all these students in. And freshman year was a big culling exercise. Uh, I started with a freshman class of 500 in the architecture school, 500. And uh, it was a five-year program. In the first couple of years, I didn't understand what they were talking about. The professors who taught architecture to the, to the first and second year students were recent graduates themselves. And they were filled with what I'm going to say is architecture jargon. Architects speak. Mm-hmm. I didn't understand it. I couldn't, I couldn't grasp when they were talking about filling a space or the texture of a building or the um, or joining two masses and so on. And this was just, it was, I could just as well have been in a foreign study, a foreign, a foreign studies class. And it took me a couple of years to actually learn enough. To, I almost actually thought about dropping out as many of my colleagues did, but I stuck it out. And finally, the first semester of my junior year, uh, my professor was someone who was also in the practice, mm-hmm. Fred, Fred Moyer. And Fred Moyer was um, a plain-spoken, excellent uh, professor who sat me down and explained things in plain English. Because I And from that day, John, I believed... Uh, as I do now, that architecture should not be a mysterious thing for the outsider. It should be, we should communicate clearly to non-architects and not, not fall back on our own jargon as, and you know, it's not just architects, it's doctors and it's lawyers and many others. Um, but with Fred Moyer, I caught on fire. I finally began to understand design. I graduated from the university thinking that I was the next gift for great design. And my hero was Frank Lloyd Wright, which okay. is pretty common in those days. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I got a fellowship. I won a, a fellowship to study in Europe for a year called the Paris Prize. It was a national design competition. And I was, I think, lucky enough to win. Uh, the, all the drawings were submitted in those days by drawing a uh, pen and ink on a board, 30 by 40 inch illustration board, and submitting them to uh, to be judged. And I was very surprised. I was home on spring break, got a call from the dean and, uh, and the chairman of the department saying, congratulations, you've just been uh, awarded the Paris Prize. And uh, you get to go to Europe and study for a year and study at the École des Beaux-Arts, which is the French National Academy. Again, I'm from the Midwest. I was almost 21 before I ever saw a mountain or the ocean. Mm -hmm. And uh, the idea of going to a place like Paris and Europe, where so so many great buildings and great cities have been created over the centuries was like a dream. Yeah. And, um, so I did that. I came back from there, went back to Illinois for a graduate program, which was probably the best year of my studies. Um, it was a master's program in architecture with an emphasis on urban design. Mm-hmm. What is that? It's design of more than one building at a time, basically. How do buildings fit into cities and can architects have an influence in how our cities are shaped? 
and I, I believe that we can, and I believe that we must, and I believe that we mostly don't. And part of what my mission is in writing this book is to help architects and the, the cause of design to re-enter a central place in our society. I think most of the people in this country and in the, around the world are moving to big cities. And as more people move to big cities, the big cities get uh, uglier and more difficult to uh, exist in, to live in. It's more a survival uh, uh, thing than a, than a quality of life thing. So I think cities can and should be noble places for people. And we're not going to get there if we rely on uh, the, the civil engineer to plan the roads uh, or the uh, uh, or the mass the uh, the developer to plan a building at a time or a subdivision at a time. We need somebody else that can think about design and quality and gracefulness. Master no planning. Yes, the nobility of people uh, can be either uh, enhanced and helped. You know, John, you you felt it. I'm sure when you when you walk into a good building or when you approach a good building or enter a really wonderful neighborhood, you feel good. You feel ennobled. Uh, I always say when I step up to a good building, it makes me feel like a million bucks. It feels good. Yeah. And that's what I want for everybody. So um, that's, that's my goal now. But of course there was 50 years of practice in between. You know, you've already provided hours of content. I'm fascinated by that. Um, quick, <clears throat> let, let's dive just for one second before we come back to how you went from junior designer at HOK to yep. CEO, which has got to be an inspiring path, path yep. for many people. <clears throat> but, you know, as a structural engineer in the architectural cladding realm, uh, I was inspired when I started in facade and curtain wall, because to me, the opportunity to work with architects on the defining signature visual aesthetic of the building, it, is spec it was spectacular. It still motivates me. And when I go to great cities, not only you know seeing those facades, the exoskeletons, if you will, of these buildings, but like a city like New York. Yeah. You know what helps to make New York? Central Park. Yep. They yep. put a gigantic park in the middle of the city. It, it, it changed Columbus Circle. It changes the whole tone. And when I go to D.C. and I see the grandeur of the architecture, it, it is inspiring. And that just that comes from the heart. I'm glad you have that passion because being able to serve architects like you and your firms in putting the things on the buildings that they're creating it's an art. It's not just a thing. It's an art. It is. And um, I think good architects have to live at the intersection of science and art. Mm -hmm. uh, buildings have to function. They have to keep the rain out. They have to keep the warmth in or the, or the cold out. Um, uh, they have to be uh, safe for their occupants and all those things. We all know there's a lot of technical um, uh, requirements, but they also, if you, if you just satisfy all of those, you'll get an enclosure, but you won't necessarily be get a noble building, a great place yeah. for people. A great architect knows how to get past just the mechanics of 
keeping the weather out, which is, after all, let's, let's, let's not overlook that. Sometimes buildings are built that don't do a good job of that. So we, that's a baseline. Yeah. But how far beyond that can we go without spending uh, clients' money that they don't have? Because uh, I think really good buildings can be still on a budget. <clears throat> how far can we go, though? to ennoble people's lives by the skin on the outside, the, the up and close and personal, how does, the, how does the door feel when you approach it or when you grab the, the door handle? Uh, you know, are we using the right material? Are we using the right, uh, I, I once got a lecture from Carl Galeotto at HOK about the numbers of different kinds of stainless steel and some of, only some of which are good enough to be door handles. I love it. So it's those kinds of detailed technical knowledge, along with a mastery of what really goes into making a great design that's important. So it does take, architecture has always been a symphony. Um, the architect is maybe the symphony leader. Mm -hmm. Got to get all the other players in there in the right places, doing the right things and working harmoniously. And that includes all the engineering disciplines. It includes the scan as areas that you've been involved in, in keeping the weather out and making the building a, a wonderful place from the outside, but making it a wonderful place on the inside and so on. It's, um, it's a wonderful thing to be able to do that. Um, and uh, I, I've loved the practice. And, you know, I practiced for 50 years, exactly to the day mm. from when I entered HOK to when I stepped out. I didn't retire. I repurposed. Repurposed. I like Pretty that. important to me. Retirement to me is <laughs> the rocking chair or maybe uh, playing bridge or poker or canasta or something, watching television. God help us. That's not what I want to do. I've got things <laughs> to do. I'm working now. I'm just not earning a living. I've made a living. Yeah. So now I'm working to help other people, basically, to help my family and to help other people with what I've learned in a lifetime. And that's a, that's what gets me up in the morning. You've already answered my question to you about what's your why. Uh, that's a wonderful purpose and motivation. I like how you talked about um, your vision of helping to put the architect again in the center of society, uh, conducting planning, helping to create beautiful spaces. Um, talk to me about, uh, I'm fascinated by this journey you had yep. as a junior designer yep. to CEO of HOK, which really, as you described to me, HOK was a fairly small regional architect when you entered and you weren't going to stay there a long time. And That's, that's right. I had so, no one. Go, tell us about that. Okay, well, um, uh, as graduation, <clears throat> pardon me, as, as, I, as I got close to graduation, I realized, okay, now <clears throat> the academic phase of my life is finished. I need to get a job, and I needed the money. I had a fellowship to go to Europe and then another fellowship to go to grad school, but the fellowship money was gone, and I needed a job just so I could eat. And uh, so as many students in Champaign-Urbana did, uh, the first thing I did is I, I got in my little Volkswagen Beetle and I drove to Chicago and interviewed there. 
with firms. And uh, that was the closest major city in the Midwest. And Chicago has a reputation as, as a great center for architecture. Uh, and uh, I interviewed with many firms, including SOM Chicago. And uh, SOM Chicago was in the, uh, a wonderful building that they had designed, the Inland Steel Building, which was a side core building. And what's a side core building? Well, most buildings have the core, which is where the elevator and stairs are in the center of the building. The building wraps around the core. A side core building, actually the core is outside on one side of the building sticking out. And that leaves the, the, the building itself completely free and open for sunlight to get in and open floors. And SOM had a floor or two in that building. And the building was impressive. And their offices were impressive. And as was common with SOM in those days, everything was on a grid, including all, uh, and again, before the computer, uh, the ceiling was a grid ceiling and it was matched by the drafting tables and the throw tables, uh, which is where everybody worked and had reference material, exactly all the same throughout this whole floor. And for the draftsmen that were not there at the time, they were instructed and they were very dutiful about rolling down a little strip of canvas to cover the top of their drafting table. This is very old fashioned, but it was to keep their drafting table clean uh, overnight and until they came back to use the, to, to, to work again. And as I interviewed and looked out at this grid, it just struck me as too rigid for me. I wanted to go to a place that was more free flow, not a place that was chaotic, but a place that looked like there was more elbow room, room for me to be myself. So I continued my search. And I, I also went to, uh, I took another trip to Boston in my little BW Beetle. Boston at the time was the, the, the current hotspot for star architecture firms. I remember going to the to, to Boston, one one firm, and not picking on anybody. These are just these are old stories that are more than 50 years old. Yeah. I went to a firm called Cambridge Seven, which was in the architecture magazines at the time, mm -hmm. and interviewed with somebody there. And um, they said, Well, we can't really hire you right now, but we could keep you on as an unpaid intern if you wanted to come and work for us. And maybe in six months or so, we could we could bring you on board. Well, uh, this was long before there was a push by the AIA and others to pay interns. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so I had to turn him down because I needed a job. Yeah. I needed to eat. So a friend of mine had gone to work in St. Louis, Missouri. And St. Louis was the town nearest where the industrial town was that I grew up in. And he said, you know, uh, I, I called him and I said, well, what's HOK like? He said, it's actually a very exciting place and it seems like a big family to me. Wow, the big family, okay. So can you get me an interview? He said, yes, I can. He was working for Obata. The, the HO and K each had a different job. Yeah. Hel Helmuth was the marketer, Obata was the designer and Casabon was the production leader. Mm -hmm. And so I took my trusty BW Beetle, drove down to St. Louis and got an interview with Obata. 
And Gio Obata uh, is the only one of the founders who's still living. He just had his 98th birthday. He still lives in suburban St. Louis, uh, but he's not from St. Louis. He's from San Francisco, where I am. Uh, his family was Japanese-American. His parents were immigrants from Japan. Uh, and uh, he grew up in Berkeley because his father taught painting at Cal. Mm -hmm. His father, Kura, was a famous landscape painter. And uh, you can still see uh, many of his works uh, on ex exhibitions in the, in the museums around the world. So Gio in, wanted to be an architect and enrolled in Cal, Berkeley, as an architect in, in uh, September 1941. And in December 1941, Japan bombed Pearl Harbor. Yes. Started World War II. And uh, because the family was Japanese Americans, the U.S. government eventually uh, passed a law that required all Japanese Americans in the three Western states that bordered the Pacific to be sequestered for the, for the war. And basically, they were detention camps. I remember. Yep in the foothills of the Sierra Nevada mountains for the most part. And uh, Gio's family was slated to go to one of the one of the camps, but Gio's father persuaded Gio said, you don't have to stay here with us. There is a provision in the law that allows you to continue your college education as long as you leave the West Coast. And so Gio wrote to a lot of universities, including my alma mater, Illinois, asking if they would admit him, and they all turned him down, mm. except one. Little Washington University in St. Louis, a really fine, small, private university that has a good architecture program. A fine school, and a great, they had a great engineering program as well. Yes, indeed. And in fact, um, as readers of my book, I could go on and on, but Washington University provided not only the three founders, they all were Washington University graduates. They didn't all meet at the university. They all met differently. But that university um, uh, created many of the early leaders of HOK. And still, there are uh, leaders within the firm that are Washington University grads. Hmm. So um, we used to, in the early days of HOK, we used to call it the Washington U Mafia because it was <laughs> <clears throat> I, I, the people that graduated from the University of Illinois were outliers. Love it. So I'm I'm digressing, John. Um, I I went took my VW Beetle, met Gio Obata in St. Louis, and I had brought along a great big portfolio of my work. And again, in those I know for the young architects listening or the young anybody, what's a portfolio? What's a big carrying case that holds 30 inch by 40 inch? boards on stiff draw and stiff cardboard of my work. That was my portfolio. And I opened it, un unzipped it, and, and he kind of leafed through it quickly, but he mostly just listened to me. He said, tell me about yourself. What are your ambitions? And that man listened right through me uh, uh, as if my, my soul was bared. I mean, he was listening so intently. That was my first lesson that if you want to really get to know somebody, you have to really listen to them. And he listened intently as I said, well, this is what I've done. And he said, what are your ambitions? And I think I, I said, I think I have some great 
design talent, and I want to do great work. And uh, all of a sudden, he grabbed me by the forearm hmm. and said, I want you to come to work for me. Well, this is quite different from somebody saying, you know, we might be able to take you on as an unpaid intern. So this yeah. is a great day. And uh, he said, uh, we've got a new project starting uh, all the way over in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which was a plane ride away. That was mm -hmm. exciting. And he said, we're just starting it. You can get on the ground floor. You can work directly under me. What do you say? And I said, well, okay. I, I, I think that'd be just wonderful. He said, when can you start? I said, well, I'm still in school. My last class is Friday the whatever. And then, of course, graduation's a week after that. He said, forget graduation. Nobody remembers their graduation. You come to me the Monday after the Friday you the, the, of your last class. Really? Yeah. So I shook hands with him. Uh, and after the Friday after my last class, I loaded up everything on my Volkswagen and drove to St. Louis. Uh, and I had a mattress. Uh, everything fit in the backseat of my car except the mattress. <laughs> I had the mattress to the to the roof of my car with binder twine, which is an old yep. cheap string. And by the and this is a guy thing. By the time I got from Champaign Urbana to St. Louis, the front of the mattress was covered with bugs. Oh yeah. <laughs> so um, I found a place to uh, to rent across the street from the office, cleaned the bugs off the mattress, <clears throat> set up housekeeping, which took about two minutes. I'll bet. Yeah. Went to work as a junior designer. And St. Louis at that time was a large firm for the time, but it was one office in St. Louis, an unlikely place you could say for uh, uh, a very large world-class firm to, to begin. But it was because of those three men and the strategy that they adopted for growth. And uh, they were organized into three departments, Helmuth, uh, was in one corner of the building. He had the marketing department and he was a pioneer. He, architects until Helmuth came along really didn't think marketing was the right thing to do. It was mm -hmm. unseemly. It wasn't professional. Obata ran the design department and uh, it was the second largest group. I think there were maybe 30 designers working mm -hmm. under EO. And then George Kassebaum ran the, what was called the production department in those days. And that was basically the place where working drawings got done mm -hmm. and where project managers and project architects resided. And um, uh, one of the things that Gio said to me, let me just make sure you hear this. He said, this firm is going places. And I didn't think too much about it at the time. And I thought, well, I'll come to St. Louis because I wanted to go somewhere else because I had grown up near there. I wanted to go somewhere out West maybe and become rich and famous. Um, so I'll work at HOK for a while, get some experience, which would be great, get licensed, and then I'll go out West. Mm -hmm. And and John, I'm telling you, my career path was this. Every time I got an itchy foot to go somewhere else, I got a new assignment that was more interesting or exciting or a new job title, or a new responsibility. Or in the case of three years after I entered, uh, I was dispatched to San Francisco, where I live now, uh, to help open the first branch office. After three years? After three years, yes. 
I was wow. a kid. I was a kid. Uh, I didn't run the office. I was one of the helpers, but I was sent there. And uh, I had never been west of Denver. So I, by then I had seen a mountain, but I had never seen California. Mm-hmm. And where I had grown up, water was brown, not blue. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, what I found there was the water was this deep blue. And the buildings, instead of being brick colored or black, they were white and pastel. Yeah. And um, I had never seen a city that was so beautiful. And I, I, I found a place to live across the Golden Gate Bridge, um, which is another long story. But I, I, I fell in love with the, the aesthetics of, of a place like San Francisco. Sure. It's a beautiful photogenic city. It's a, it's a very European kind of city in that it's, except for the hills, it's quite walkable. And uh, it's got a beautiful setting uh, uh, surrounded on three sides by water. Mm-hmm. So uh, that I, I said, as soon as I saw it, I'm home. This is the place for me. And uh, little did I know that uh, a couple of years after that, uh, I, I made a major career change. Uh, the bosses at the time sat me down and said, you know, Patrick, I, was, I had been working as a designer even designed some of my own projects by that time. But they said, we've noticed you that you're a very organized young man and that you seem to always have uh, a way of making your projects get finished on time. And you always seem to make money with your projects and you have a nice way of working with others on your team. How would you like to be a project manager? Mm -hmm. Wow, what a change. Well, does that mean I can't design anymore? Well, the way HOK works is there's no wall of separation. Project designers, <clears throat> projects are designed by, are led by a team of three, mm-hmm. a project manager, project designer, and a project architect. Each one is responsible for a different piece of the work. However, all three are in each other's hair, collaborating on everything. So I had, I was able to still keep my hand in design but I wasn't the, the, I wasn't the final answer, but I found that for me with my personality, my, my DNA, I guess, that management was something I came to love. Mm -hmm. And I also learned something, John, that the word manager, project manager, I is the manager is not the right term. It's really leader. Mm -hmm. Manager says to me, Oh, I'm a manager. I get to tell people what to do like a boss. And in a creative enterprise, or I think most enterprises, people don't like to be told what to do. They like to be engaged with the work and have someone help them discover what to do. So yeah. I learned the difference. Uh, but I got to be pretty good as a manager. Before I knew it, I was the uh, managing principal of San Francisco. Okay. And another step. I became um, uh, executive vice president for the Pacific Rim because by then HOK had exploded with offices in Asia and in Europe and across the U.S. And then um, I had a stint after that, and I was put in the executive committee of the firm, which was the entity after the three founders, an executive committee was the way the firm was run. And um, I had a stint also as the 
uh, as the uh, chief operating officer, basically the manager of the project managers, I guess, mm -hmm. the manager of the offices. So I, I basically, and I also had this, a, a lot of marketing work uh, through the years, because anybody in a leadership position has to be able to sell. So I've kind of done it all mm -hmm. uh, in those in those years, and I became the CEO in uh, 2003. Um, and so that was after quite a few years as in the firm. Uh, and if you ask me, did I think I was surprised? I keep being surprised that I actually worked there that long. Yes, I did, but it was a labor of love, John. It was. HOK became my family. Mm -hmm. And uh, we have a thing called HOK culture that the founders first uh, promoted. And it's very simple. <clears throat> we treat each other like family on the inside. We help each other to succeed, just like a well-run family. And their saying always was, we collaborate on the inside so that we can compete on the outside. You, uh, that's spectacular. And I love the ascension. It moved rather quickly. It almost sounds like an exponential curve where it accelerated more and more as you got more experience. Would you attribute that growth and that familial culture all the way back to that first interview where your colleague, your friend said, Patrick, it's like a big family? Yes, I do. Well, it was the founders. Uh, that was their foundation that they laid, right? Yeah. They laid it. Uh, there's a long. There was a long period where HOK grew too fast. There's a. There's a bunch of chapters in my book mm -hmm. where HOK grew too fast, and the people in the new offices had never met the founders, and uh, HOK made some fundamental mistakes and did not always seed a new office with the DNA of somebody from the from the, the original office or a, a newer office. So. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the HOK culture began to erode. And by the time I got to be the CEO, it was in desperate need of repair. Um, how do you create, how do you rebuild a culture of everybody treating each other like family when people are scattered across the globe, many of whom have never met mm -hmm. and don't, and think of each other as sometimes as competitors instead of as family. Uh, that took, uh, I had three big jobs when I got to be CEO. So, some CEOs get to pick their mission. My first one was to, to uh, rebuild the operations of the firm. The firm by then was spotty and some offices were profitable and some were not. Some offices had steady work and some did not and so on. So rebuilding consistency. Um, and, uh, but the, the, then, and then, paying off our bank loan. That was a crisis. Uh, HOK, like many firms, had a line of credit with a local bank. And by the time I got to be CEO, that line of credit was all used up. Mm. It was maxed out. And the bank basically pinned our ears back and said, unless you do something to start paying us back, we're going to call the line. I know what that means. <laughs> call the line is not good. <laughs> no, that is not good. Basically, it means the line of credit is due and payable right now. And that's an invitation to bankruptcy. Yeah. So we managed to get some more time. 
and started paying the bank off with our improved operations. It took three years, John, mm-hmm. to pay off the bank. And, you know, the bank had, when I first met the banker as the new CEO, the young banker, half my age, chewed me up from one side to the other and didn't really want to hear about my strategy for HOK. Yeah. I didn't like that too much. Been and there. Told, and I told our CFO, I don't want to deal with that banker again. I just want to pay off that loan. Mm-hmm. So as we began to pay the loan off, the young banker sort of started calling our CFO and saying, hey, you guys are doing pretty well. Would you like some more line of credit? And I, the word I sent back to him was, no, thank you. We're interested in paying off the line. Mm-hmm. And finally, the day came when we paid off the line of credit entirely, down to the last penny. Mm-hmm. And he and his boss invited the CFO and I to a nice lunch to, uh, to tell us how proud of us they were and to offer us an even bigger line of credit. And I told the CFO, we're not going to lunch. We're going to find a new bank. There you go. And we did. Well, I love it. I've been through this similar situation. <laughs> I know your experience. So um, the, overcoming those kind of external hurdles uh, took time. And John, the other thing we did, once we paid off that line, we had, we had by then become steadily profitable. And we had gotten used to the idea of taking a piece of the profits every month or two and putting them into paying off that line. When we started with the new bank, we also got a new line of credit, but we also opened up a savings account for a long-term strategic fund. Mm-hmm. And instead of paying off the line, we just kept making the payments to the savings account. To the savings account. And pretty soon we had self-funded our own line of credit. Mm-hmm. That we had a cash flow need temporarily. We could dip into that. But as we continued to make payments of that, it became our strategic reserve. Yeah. So if we needed to hire a new specialized person, or there was a great firm somewhere that was for sale and we were interested in what they did and who their contact, we had money. And money is something that architects, architects and money don't seem to mix too well. But Not they, always, yeah. But it's possible. And uh, the book and my podcast series is all about if architects, if you want to get back into the center of society, you can't do it by running a haphazard business. Mm-hmm. You have to have a well-funded business, you have to pay your people properly, and you have to support great design before you can move back to the center of society. You have so, to build respect. Yes. And the foundation for that is running a good business. So uh, that well, became a big part of the process. Yeah. I have a deep admiration for that because I always say, you know, whether it's in architecture or structural engineering, any professional services you know, it's for us, it's the art of designing safe, serviceable structures while making a living. And yeah. that can be challenging at times. And so as as you've kind of introduced us, you, you wrote this book called Designing a World-Class Architecture Firm, right? The People, Stories, and Strategies Behind HOK. You've, yeah. you've gone through some of this, but are, is it this work that you're viewing in a large part as a public service to the design profession and you want to help architects 
yes. manage firms well and reemerge in the center of society. You, you said it exactly. In other words, uh, this isn't just a history of HOK, which would be interesting to a few people. Mm-hmm. This is for any, any professional, I would say d- design professions uh, or any, any creative enterprise, uh, actually any enterprise that's service business that wants to know how do I make this all work? Because whether you're, uh, whether you're designing buildings or designing structures, you've got the same issues. And uh, how do you run a firm successfully? How do you build an internal culture? How do you work with your bank? How do you manage your cash flow? Those are all in the book. Uh, and, it's, and it's not a cookbook for financial people. It's a, it's a summary for people that are creative to understand things. Um, while you're on that, uh, I mean, we could spend a tremendous amount of time and you have, you have this podcast series actually that has 14 sessions devoted to this, which we'll get into, but I'm really interested, particularly right now on the survival lessons in down cycles. Is it possible to interject a couple of lessons learned there since we're in a bit of a down cycle, the ABI is down. It's in the low 40s, and yep. Yep. people are struggling with this whiplash effect from COVID. Talk, talk about sure. those lessons. Sure. Well, um, HOK was actually born out of a downtime. Hmm. Founder George Helmuth, I'm going to take you back in time again. Founder George Helmuth uh, grew up in St. Louis as the son of an architect. And his father and his uncle, his father's brother, practice architecture in the turn of the 1900s as a firm called, guess what else, Helmuth and Helmuth. And young George, who wanted to be an architect from an early age, watched his father and his uncle struggle with the downturns. Mm -hmm. The two brothers uh, would get a job, they would hire draftsmen, and it was draftsmen in those days, no women in the practice. Um, And about the time they would get um, the draftsman trained to be more effective, the project would be over, and often there wasn't another project in the pipeline. So they, what, the, what would they do? Well, they would lay off their draftsman and be back down to the two brothers again, scratching around looking for another job. And Helmuth was seared by this as a youngster. Um, and he, they weren't poor, but they had periods of time in his young life when they had belt tightening. He called it a roller coaster. The ups were pretty good and the downs were really not too good at all. <clears throat> and then he, he, he enrolled at Washington U, just, just like all the other founders. When he graduated, he, went to, he wanted to work for his father and his uncle, but he had the bad fortune of graduating in 1932. Mm. For those who are not students of history, the Great Depression, which lasted a decade, not a year like the coronavirus, but a de- 10 years, the Great Depression had started in 1930. And uh, when George Helmuth Jr. Uh, graduated, he went to his father and his uncle. They couldn't take him on. They had no work. So he wrangled a job as a junior architect with the city of St. Louis. And for six years, he worked designing park benches, bus stops, and comfort stations in, the, in Forest Park, the main mm-hmm. park. Each year, he would come back to his father and his uncle and say, can you please take me on? No, we can't. 
Finally, his father said, you know, George, we don't know how to practice architecture. Why don't you get out of St. Louis, go to a bigger city and get a big firm that knows how to do something and have them take you on. Maybe you'll learn. So he did. He left St. Louis, went to Detroit. Detroit was rivaling Chicago in, in, in the in the uh, in those years for dominance in the upper Midwest. And Detroit had the big three auto companies. Mm-hmm. There he found uh, a job with Smith Henchman and Grills, SHG. Now the, it's the parent of the, the today's Smith Group. Smith Group, JJR, yeah. Yeah, and um, he started as a junior designer, like somebody else we know. <laughs> and his bosses discovered that he had a real affinity for people mm-hmm. and decided to put him in what they called their solicitation department. And uh, that was, it wasn't marketing per se, but it was helping the firm organize when uh, a project was identified. So as he, as he worked in this arena, he began to develop principles. How do you deal with a downtime? How do you, how do you, how do you develop what he finally ended up calling a depression-proof firm? Hmm. Um, and he wrote up a paper on it, 21 pages, single-spaced, typewritten, no computers, and presented it to his bosses at Smith Henchman and Grills. And uh, they said, how long would this take to put into place? Five years. It's a five-year investment. He said, it's five years before it will bear fruit. He, he, and they said, we don't have five years. We have six months before we need the next job. You, you just go back and continue to help get the next job. Mm-hmm. What did he do? He quit. he said this isn't the place for me yeah and uh, he took two other people with him to form a new firm that was founded on his principles interesting and um it was the forerunner to hok uh and uh he decided that uh, a good firm to be recession proof depression proof he called it had to have four things and HOK is still based on these four plus some others. The first one was attracting and keeping people, talented people, and giving them a career path in, the, in your firm is the most important singular thing that you can do if you want to be successful. Again, that's the primary point. Yeah. The second thing is, well, people need steady work, so you need to have a, a marketing program this continuous to support them and, and make sure, making sure you have continuous amount of work in the pipeline. And the third one, and I think this one, John, reflects well on, um, uh, it applies directly to the, the, the coronavirus or the next recession or the next period of difficulty, which is diversify, diversify, and diversify your practice. Mm-hmm. Almuth learned, he said, you know, Everybody's doing schools right now. Someday there's going to be the baby boom is going to be over and this, there will be no schools to design. Mm-hmm. Learn how to design everything. While the firm is designing schools, Helmuth busied himself learning how to, uh, marketing everything except schools, mm-hmm. a new airport for St. Louis, a new prison, uh, a hospital addition. And, uh, it was a difficult time because the firm had to learn how to design these new building types. It was by force of Helmuth's personality 
as much as by Obata's skill that the firm learned to design everything. Uh, every project is a, an audition for the next. Mm -hmm. Every project has a client that may need you again for the next new project, and it might be a different kind. So uh, diversify the kinds of buildings you can design, and then he extended that further. He said, we need to diversify by geography. Uh, if St. Louis is where my primary office is, you know, St. Louis might have a, a, a temporary regional recession. Things might not be so hot in St. Louis. Maybe we should look to another office in Chicago or Detroit or New York. And uh, so we should, we should disperse geographically. Why? Because we want to keep that work steady to keep those people. Again, that, that, that premier principle. So disperse geography. And then finally, also, let's offer every kind of professional service. Let's not just offer architectural services. People don't always, clients don't always need an architect, but maybe they need an interior designer or they need a planner or a programmer or a consultant to help them decide what to do next or an engineer, a building engineer, uh, structural, mechanical, electrical, lighting, and on and on, uh, a landscape architecture, planning. So over the years, HOK accumulated all of those, again, just to keep scraps of work going. Mm -hmm as a way to uh, to insulate the firm from these times when the bottom drops out. <clears throat> Finally, John, <clears throat> he said, firms should have, he watched his father and his uncle and his firm and their firm not fight like cats and dogs, but not get along too well. Both brothers liked to design. So they had competitions to see who could win the client and the person that won the client was the one that got the design. The other one had to help. Oh. You've probably seen this a time or two. He said, you know, that doesn't really work that well. You should have a firm where the leaders are separated out and specialized. You should have a marketing leader, a design leader, and a production leader. And each one should focus on their task. And uh, that way they won't compete with each other. Uh, each one will have a job to fulfill. And he said, the other benefit is if you do something every day for a long time, you get good, you get at, pretty it. good at it. So you that, be good. So they're creating a collaborative culture, not a competing yeah. culture, really. They're working in alignment. And honestly, a lot of times, if we just stay out of each other's way, that is one of the best things we can do. Yes, indeed. So those are his four principles. Those are great. So retaining people, yep. a, a steady work marketing program, a diversified practice, and this, what I'll call a collaborative culture, yes. um, non-competing yep. roles in the leaders. And I know, I mean, I've interfaced some with HOK. I, you know, I've worked with uh, Stephen Weinrib, who you know, yep. and, you know, I remember him saying, oh, I can't meet that time. I, I have a whatever it was, a once a month meeting with the 19 senior technical principals at HOK. That's right. I've, I've interfaced on jobs where the project architect is in the room and then, oh, no, 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 let's bring in the project designer. And they're, they're collaborating together. Um, and I've met and worked with their structural engineer who are it's sometimes doing proprietary stuff. So That's it right. is quite a firm, quite a firm that to have yeah. that many disciplines. 
Yes, and uh, the growth of the firm and the, the size of the, you know, HOK has 1,700, 1,800 people these days, uh, allows within that firm people to become specialized and very, very, very good at something. Mm-hmm. And there's a career path. If you're a young architect, you could aspire to be um, uh, a project architect in the technical mm-hmm. area. Or if you have a career path beyond that, to be a technical principal, leading right. an office. Right. And, um, even you can also aspire to be uh, at the at the executive committee of the firm as the technical leader of the firm. Mm-hmm. So we have those career paths are four, uh, and each one of those is represented all the way up through the firm. It's quite a so people can see their career once they've decided. Yeah. You know, at the beginning, everybody wants to design, but all of us discover finally uh, our true purpose. Sometimes it's design, sometimes it's technical architecture, et cetera. So uh, it, it, led to, uh, it led to a beautiful thing inside the firm where there were people that were, that were in the same arena uh, that wanted to help each other succeed. When the technical principles sit down together, virtually or in person, John, they talk about things like the skin of the building and how to keep the water out and how to make the skin resilient. And they talk about that chrome on the, on the door handle at the front door and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing because you need that to do great work. Mm-hmm. Um, so the other thing that I would add is that you notice that HOK was three, feet, three people, HO and K. We've now basically, we still have a marketing leader in every office, we still have a design leader. The Casabom role of production has been really divided into two pieces. Mm-hmm. There's a technical architecture piece, and then there is a management piece. And Casabom actually did both. We just didn't call it that. Mm-hmm. He ran the firm. He was the one that he was the he was the managing principal of the St. Louis founding office. He took care of the banking relationship and the accountants and the legal uh, things and so on. So we've now got in, in, in a proper HOK office, four leaders that work it separately, but harmoniously together. And if they're not harmonious, then the executive committee's got a job to do to, to create harmony one way or the other. <laughs> <laughs> Let me, before we move on, I, we're getting deep into the conversation. I, I want to talk about the Build Smart nonprofit, what that is, but let me name drop for a minute while I'm thinking about it. Um, do you know Paul Tometz? I've heard the name. He was a, a, a gentleman I worked with on a product development. He had done some marketing work in the Southern California office. And I worked with also Susan Grossinger before. Um, I know her well. Yeah, City of Industry over there, that office in LA. Uh, the yeah. Beautiful, yeah, terrific office, a great expression of culture. <clears throat> um, good people. Um, that's good to know. So let, let's shift gears. The remaining time we have is a couple more topics. Um, I know that you were a pioneer in green building, but you've also got this building smart nonprofit. And I'm interested in the formation and the purpose and the connection to building information modeling with that. Can you talk about that? Yes, of course. Um, as a young architect, um, I was always, I think like so many, as a project manager, the young project manager, I was bedeviled with 
the loss of information from the beginning of the design process to the end. Um, I remember we were designing a courthouse and the chief judge, who was a woman, um, we interviewed her in her chambers. Well, what do you need in your chambers? And we, she talked about that. And then she, she said, I want to show you something. She took us into her half bath. All the chambers had a half bath for the judge's use. And the half bathroom had a sink and a toilet. And the toilet had a very institutional looking black toilet seat with a split front. She looked us in the eye and she said, I'm a woman. <laughs> I don't want a split front. I want, a, I want an oval toilet seat, full seat. And I don't want black, I want white. We said, that's not a problem. We wrote it down, again, before a computer. Wrote it down, wrote the, the secretary typed up meeting notes that went in the file cabinet. Boom. What happened? End of the job comes. I'm walking through the job uh, before it's turned over to the, the owner. And there it is in her, in her new chambers, a black toilet seat with a split front. How the Sam Hill did we miss this? <laughs> we forget something that was so important to her personally. Yeah. And so at HOK's expense, we changed all the toilet seats out. It wasn't a big expense, but it was, it was embarrassing to me. And it got me to thinking by then computers were beginning to be around. Wouldn't it be computers are really good for certain things like remembering. Yeah. Better than people. Yeah. Wouldn't it be good if we could have a computer related computer organized tickle file or something to do this? Well, that led me on a long journey and uh, eventually led me to become a co-founder of, and John, I'm leaving out a lot of the chapters there, but yeah, that was the beginning of uh, there's got to be a better way. And uh, it led us, it led me to be one of the 12, about 12 companies I was the HOK representative to found what became called Building Smart International. And Building Smart is a nonprofit uh, standards making organization that's, that has the aim to create digital standards to make designing and building and operating buildings easier, better, and more seamless. Um, too often, information gets lost when we hand off from the architect to the engineer or from the owner to the architect or certainly from the architect to the contractor. And we all have the need to have our workflows harmonized so that, uh, so that I can do something in the right, in the right time and hand it off to somebody else and so on. So building smart uh, became a standards making organization. We're headquartered now in the UK but we're global. We have chapters in 26 countries and mm -hmm. across the world in, in North America, Europe, Asia, and Australia. Um, and uh, we've created standards that are now part of the ISO collection of standards specified now by many countries. Um, the big users, the big, the big software houses, Autodesk, uh, Graphisoft, uh, Bentley Systems, and so on, have adopted our standards and you can get these standards, these compatible uh, softwares that allow you to transition from Autodesk to Bentley or someone else seamlessly. And more important, John, in these days of lots of little specialized apps to allow you to do things, the little special app writers are able to also 
do uh, their work that's compatible with everybody else because we've created a, an exchange standard called the IFC, uh, an exchange standard that allows information to flow from one app writer to, to uh, uh, Autodesk product uh, or from Autodesk product back to them and so on. So now architects and engineers can quickly apply little apps and find out, am I, am I following the owner's building program? Is my project within the budget? Uh, how, how's my energy usage? How much light is coming in the building? Uh, have I, have I uh, exceeded my tolerance for um, the green building standards and so on and so on? And an infinite, almost infinite number of things that can be quickly checked because software is compliant, compatible with each other. Mm -hmm. uh, you can't go to any one shop and get a software that will do everything. But you can find softwares, new ones, especially little ones, that are just amazingly helpful to, to help architects, engineers, contractors, and building operators do their jobs. Okay. So, so, so if we uh, I, we cannot do this justice, I know I've got one other question. But is your Build Smart podcast built around the book, or is it built around this building smart nonprofit? It's built around the book, and our goal is to have a series of three podcasts. The first one is the book. Okay. The second one would be, if we have the energy, to be built around the Building Smart uh, nonprofit. Mm -hmm. And the third podcast series would be about this global need for great design uh, to be pushed back into the center of our, of our societies. I hope that you'll have the energy for all of those because that would be tremendous content. What does the McClamey curve have to do with BIM? Uh, everything. Okay. Um, John, we all, uh, the days of working with uh, paper and pencil are basically over. Uh, some designers still use it and it's handy at certain times for sketching, but um, now that we're using tools for designing and mostly we're using three-dimensional tools, three-dimensional, we're modeling buildings. And the, the term that everybody uses, building information modeling, BIM. And the I in BIM, the information piece is key. Mm -hmm. uh, if, if, you, if you really look at it, the information is an ocean of, of information that we need to convey back and forth. If architects and engineers are designing in BIM and applying these new uh, analysis tools as they go, they should put much more effort, effort earlier in the design process during schematic design and DD. The computer is so good at remembering things and adding things and calculating things. If we, if we do the building properly, model it right at the beginning, the traditional contract documents, working drawings piece should be a much flattened out, smaller phase. I see. So the, the, the message of the McLamey curve is, if you want to do good design, don't skip through it so you can spend a lot of time in production. Stay with it. Use the BIM tools. Use the analysis tools. Work with a contractor as a partner if you can. Instead of a design bid build, do a, a, a collaborative design build with a contractor you know and trust treat each other as partners, and you will get much better designs and much better buildings. And are you then advocating that you're 
you're, you're focusing on the front end, you're putting a lot of resources on the front end, and are you also loading a lot of the intelligence into the model on the front end? Yes, that's where the eye of BIM comes. That is, if you, if you work on it uh, properly in the beginning and do all the testing, you'll have a, an amazingly complete assemblage of information to pass on to the next step. Uh, you'll have less to do. Uh, John, everybody that's designed a building or gone through that process knows what I mean. Projects that start well tend to finish well. Mm -hmm. So if you give your project the chance to start well by doing a thorough job of designing and, and organizing the information around design, uh, you're going to have a successful project. If you, if you slip through that too quickly and say, well, I'll, don't worry, I'll catch that at the next phase, chances are you'll have a building that will fail and the contractor will catch your mistakes for you in the construction phase, which is, you know, would you rather make a mistake when you're on the computer or when it's in concrete and steel? It's right. an obvious answer. So right. the McLamy curve is really, I, I called it, I didn't name it the McLamy curve, I called it the effort curve, but it's been used so many times in seminars and whatnot and attributed to me that it's just become known as the McLamy curve. It's a little embarrassing to me, actually, but that's that's what it's called now. Uh, <laughs> but it's it it really fits with building smart, and it's been adopted by HOK uh, as a strategy to do more work early uh, because it results in better designs and better buildings. You know, I love your the tone, which hopefully will encourage many design professionals, architects, and engineers included, on the. You've had a tone that you can design great stuff, but you can also organize it, curate it, and do it in a pragmatic manner that you can still earn a profit and deliver value. And I think that gets lost a lot of times in managing a professional services company. Uh, I think you're spot on. You know, a lot of people, I don't know why, John, come out of architecture school, design school, thinking, in order to be a good architect, you have to suffer and starve. And then maybe if you're lucky and you're really persistent and you work hard, some special client will discover you mm -hmm. or a magazine will discover you. You'll get famous and then you'll have a lot of work. That's not really a strategy for success. Mm -hmm. The real strategy, and it took me, it took me years to discover this. The real strategy for success is to design a firm with the same care that you use in designing a building. That's oh, what that's, the is about. That's really well said, applying the same principles to the business side of it. Um, well, I, I'll put the Build Smart and the Building Smart nonprofit information in the show notes so people can look at it more. But I think you were ahead of your time and, and I, I like the energy you're putting into the whole building information modeling and these um, ISO standards because it's the the BIM area. In fact, I still I still hear I, I made this mistake at the start of of it. I hear people say, "Well, we're going to draw that in BIM." Like, yeah. no, nope. you don't you don't understand. <laughs> BIM is a mindset. You're going to produce a deliverable in BIM, having loaded intelligence into the software and let it produce the things that you're trying to manifest. That's You've said it. You've said it very well. So, <laughs> um, there is so much more we 
we could go over. Um, I'll point people to your own podcast as we work to conclude here. Um, do you have any, you still have a tremendous amount of energy. Um, do you have any mindsets or routines that help you keep your energy? Do you think um, others listening might benefit from mindsets, mindset routines, patterns that you go through to keep engaged? Sure. Uh, Actually, John, I, I have, uh, yes, I do. Uh, first of all, I'm, I'm very, very happily married. Mm -hmm. uh, I met my wife at HOK. She's also an architect. Very proud of the fact that she's also a fellow. Um, we're one of the few, there are some, but we're one of the rare couples who are both fellows. Uh, we're, we're, we've been happily married for 46 years. That's the first most important thing. Um, I eat extremely um, healthy. I basically follow my, my wife's lead on what to eat. And uh, we get out for exercise every single day. Mm. We probably walk uh, between two and three miles a day. Uh, I'm not a jogger. Um, I don't think you need to, but I, I exercise every single day. And also, um, both of us are voracious readers. And we're not reading comic books. We're basically my my tendency is to read historical uh, uh, books, books of history of famous people uh, or famous events. Uh, I'm a student of history, and I have been ever since uh, I had that nice year in Europe. Mm -hmm. I'll bet that was a great year. That was um, a fantastic year. Uh, that's that's good advice. You know. If you've ever read a great book to read, if you haven't read it, it's called Blue Zones. It's it's a genealogy study of the pockets of extreme longevity in the world: Sardinia, uh, Loma Linda, um, the islands of Samoa, um, so Greece, some places in Greece. And uh, I saw another follow-up that I was looking at the thread. What is the common thread between all these societies? And there was only one common thread, and I saw it reiterated again this morning in a TED Talk, that there's out of the 10 top categories for predicting longevity, the top two are, um, second from the top, depth and number of friendships, close friendships. And the top one was the level of social engagement. The more engaged and connected you are socially and the more close friends who would give you a loan or come to your funeral, the longer your predicted lifespan above nutrition and all the other things, those things being important, they're in the top 10. Yeah, yeah. But, um, and that was the same in blue zones, social connectivity and friendships. What a tremendous, I mean, there, yeah, there's genetics as well, but that, yeah. that goes a long way. So thank you for sharing that with us. Uh, a, a good relationship with your wife, um, reading and keeping an active mind and, and exercising every day. And you're blessed to be in an area of the country where as long as you have a windbreaker or a sweater, right? You can walk most of the time. That's right. We, we are blessed with good weather here most of the time. So yeah, we're in, we're in schizophrenic weather right now in the Midwest. In fact, today we had four inches of snow on the ground oh. last, last week it was 70 degrees and now the ground is completely green again. So that's what I'm living in. Uh. Patrick, um, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Um, an hour and 10 minutes can't do this justice, but you've been tremendous. Um, 
we we have to close up now for the for your sake of your time and, and our audience. There's so many nuggets here. Um, any any parting words of wisdom for us before we uh, adjourn today? Well, I, I just again, John, I just I'm very grateful that you've given me the opportunity. You've been such a good listener, given me the opportunity to get this word out of my my passions, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I hope it's helpful to the people that are listening. And uh, I've just enjoyed it very much. I'd be happy to come back and and uh, have another conversation with you any time. Oh, thank you. That that means a lot to me, uh, Patrick. Thank you. So again, the name of your book is Designing a World-Class Architecture Firm. Uh, people can buy that online if they want? They can. Um, it's uh, available on Amazon. You can go to my website, maclamy.com. maclamy.com. There's a link. Um, so it's it's out there. Uh, you just Google it and you get there. Okay. And, and I know you're on LinkedIn. I'll put all these in the show notes. Uh, the Build Smart podcast. Um, where can we when, where can we access that? That's through Gable Media, G A B L Media. Okay. Com. If you go to gablemedia.com and uh, and look, the Build Smart podcast is up next to the top. Okay, great. I'll put that in the show notes as well, so everyone can access uh, these rich resources that you've developed. Thank you for being a servant to society after giving fifty years to the growth at HOK. Um, I could have stopped and just talked to you uh, at the very start. I could have spent the whole time just listening to your vision on putting the architect in the center of society and how to recreate awe and inspiration around buildings, because that just does make such a world of difference. We'll come back to that topic a different time. Great. I look forward to it, John. Thank you. Well, he is Patrick McClamey. I am John Wheaton. This is another episode of the Creating Structure podcast. I thank you for listening. Have a great day.